All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is Marty Frederick wearing a pretty cool hat. What's going on, Marty? Not much. It's a Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors rope hat. I got it at a show back when shows were a thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was like $35. <laughs> a very expensive hat, but uh, I love it. So it's nice and light, flimsy. Yeah. And it was a good summer hat. That's it's getting cool. to be that time. It is. You know, I, it's like we always talk about the weather during this banter period, Josh, I feel like, because like it's an easy thing <laughs> to look out the window and be like on the fly, oh, what's going on? But it's supposed to be in like the 60s today for us. And like it's been kind of cold and rainy the last couple of days. So it's it's great to finally be in a position where you can be outside for more than like five minutes without a jacket on. You know? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's we've had some really nice days here in Baltimore, but today is just going to be like mid fifties. Um, but then we're, I mean, we're going to be in like some upper sixties. looks like a cold front's going to come through, which will suck, but then we'll be back into the seventies. So nice. I'm, I'm here for good. it. Sounds yeah. Good. It's, it's cool, dude. I actually, so I started a new gig on, uh, on Wednesday of last week. And then on Saturday I had my second day there. Um, and, uh, so it's at a brewery called 1623 and uh we have like this really big patio space and like this alleyway it's super sweet and so like we had like the big garage door open you know garage doors open to the patio and like all the fresh air coming in uh it was super sweet so i'm I'm here, awesome. I'm here for the nice weather so i know we're not here to talk about weather and covid and all that but just real quick are you guys open like can anybody come in like what's the rule like what oh, are the rules for breweries in, in maryland yeah, so it's still limited capacity, um, and you have to wear uh, – so masks are still a thing. So anytime you are moving around the facility, uh, you have to wear a mask. So when you walk in, uh, anytime you get up to go to the bathroom, if you you know get up to get water or to you know order another drink or something like that. But if you're just like sitting down, you're good. Yeah, just That's just like Illinois. I just was curious. Yeah, yeah. And then, of, of course, like employees have to wear masks the whole time and da-da-da, mm-hmm. so – Nice. Yep. And then we're doing like extra precautions. Like not only do we run all of our glassware through the, like our industrial cleaner, but we also have like a separate sink that we have, um, you know, sanitizing solution and stuff. And so we, we sanitize everything and wash it just to be safe. That's, yeah. that's, that's a good idea. We go hard. <laughs> it's we're, a good idea all the time, but that's a good idea, particularly now. Yeah. Yeah. We're a community focused brewery. And so we want to give a good, you know, um, good experience for our guests in our community. And that involves not giving them COVID. <laughs> so agreed. Uh, be respectful towards that. Ed. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I well, agree. Marty, we're not alone today. As much as I would like to just have a conversation about beer, maybe we can do that another time. We do have another guest uh, uh, with us today. And so maybe we should introduce him before he, you know, decides to peace out of the zoom call or, you know, Go do something else. Sounds <laughs> good to me. I'm in for that. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, listeners, today we have with us Dr. Julian Smith. Julian, how are you? I'm great. I'm enjoying this conversation about beer so much. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, we, we, we also love to consume beer, uh, not just talk about it 
Um, it's a little early in the day where I'm at. I mean, it's not that yeah. bad, but it's a li- it's like 11 o'clock. But I yeah, think so I'm waiting. Something's missing if you're only talking about beer and you're yeah. not right. consuming yeah. it. That's that's a that's kind of missing the point, I would say. But <laughs> yeah, I think so. Just I my agree. view. <laughs> yeah, and Marty, you know what they always say? It's five o'clock somewhere. That's true, <laughs> right? You that's know, true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julian, uh, we have a couple of questions we like to ask our guests. The first is just, who are you, and what do you do? Uh, my name is Julian Smith, and I teach humanities and theology in Christ College, which is the Honors College of Valparaiso University. We are a small Lutheran University in Valparaiso, Indiana, which is uh, just south of Chicago, not too far from you, Marty. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so sh- shall I stop there and tell you more about myself? What sure. I- yeah. Did you, we- Tell us your social security number. Okay. What's your favorite? Yeah. <laughs> I see how this works. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just get, I mean, if just anything is, is, is great, whatever you'd like to share. Um, well, okay. I, I love to garden. Okay. I haven't always loved gardening, um, but 23 years ago, I married a woman. Uh, her name is Hope, and she has a green thumb. And um, she has steadily drawn me into the garden summer after summer. Um, and I, I, maybe we'll get into this more if the conversation goes this way, but actually I have found um, the effort of trying to produce at least some of the food that we eat to be uh, profoundly um, illuminating and helpful spiritual discipline. Mm. It sounds kind of odd to think of gardening as a spiritual discipline, but I think it is. Mm. Um, my wife and I have two sons. Uh, they're getting older every year. Um, one's already out of the house and the other one is almost. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. All right, cool. So I'm hoping for this question. I have high hopes for this next question based okay. on where you're currently located. Um, who is your favorite ice hockey team? You know, I, I've thought about this so long because I've listened to your podcast and I know this is so you're going to try and catch me out here. Um, and I have to, I, I just have to be honest, fellas, I'm not a hockey player or a hockey watcher, um, but I do sort of have a kind of a, a local um, or a regional allegiance to places that I have lived and grown up. I grew up in a small town in the north of New Hampshire called Berlin. It's spelt like Berlin as that city in Germany, but we pronounced it Berlin. There's a city next okay. to us called Milan, except we pronounced it Milan. That was our gift of mispronouncing foreign words. And <laughs> a friend of mine, when I was growing up, said, did you know that Berlin is Hockey Town, USA? And I always thought that he was just making it up. I later came to find out that actually we were Hockey Town, USA. Sometime in the 60s, like somebody on the town board decided to crown ourselves Hockey Town USA. <laughs> All right. And so I'm I'm gonna sort of say my favorite team is from that neck of the woods, but that creates a like a problem because would would that be a, a Boston Bruins fan or a Montreal Canadiens fan? And yeah. I think geographically I'm gonna go with the Montreal Canadiens. Nice. Uh, that's my team and, and that's my reason. And I'm sticking with it, fellas. All right. I like it. That's a much better, much better team than the Boston Bruins. Yeah. I I yeah. I, I say Canadians all day. Oh, good. Because I, I chose it entirely ignorant of like what sort of team I was choosing. So yeah. And you, and you join the ranks of, you know, the likes of people like N.T. Wright, mm-hmm. who just don't actually care. Uh, <laughs> but but oh. that's the team he named was Montreal really? Canadiens. Was oh. yeah, he said that, that would be his favorite team. Okay. Yeah. Well, so you, you can in good company. Yeah. yeah, you can chalk that up. You know, NT Wright and I, we have this in common. Uh, we have a lot. You get, you get to say we have a lot. I have a lot in common with NT Wright. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll remember that. Yeah. I guess the last the last question we ask as a bio um, is, what would you say is the most important aspect of your faith that you've had to rethink? Hmm. So actually, I I'll answer that question by saying, the most re- important aspect of faith that I have rethought is what the word faith means. And I guess 
I grew up in an environment in which faith meant belief. And um, so you, you have to believe certain things are true. Um, and if you believe those things to be true, then uh, you'll go to heaven when you die. And I've, I've come to think of faith so that the word that gets translated as faith or belief in the New Testament is a Greek word, pistis. And I think that word, I mean, like a lot of words, there's, there's a huge semantic domain and there's generally a lot of overlap in terms of meanings. But I think it gets used in the New Testament in a way that's much more about something like trust or uh, loyalty, or my favorite term is allegiance, embodied allegiance. And I think uh, it's really been a paradigm shift for me to think of what it means to be a Christian a follower or a disciple of Jesus as being one who is embodying in my daily life a kind of allegiance to Jesus and, and how that affects uh, what life looks like for me. Wow. Thank you very much. That's a very profound answer. And I, I really appreciate um, what you had to say there. So thank you. Great question. Yeah, that, that is a really good answer. I, I like it. And I, I mean, I love that the, the way of talking about faith as, as an embodied allegiance to mm-hmm. Jesus, like that's really beautiful. And um, actually, and I know this is somebody that, that you've interacted with before as well, uh, but Matthew Bates, mm-hmm. um, some of his work around that is really great. We had a really fun conversation with him. Jeez, man, Marty, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Was. it? When we hung out with him. Yep. Yeah. Every when gospel, ago. yeah. When gospel allegiance came out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Matthew Bates work has been very instrumental in my own thinking and, and also kind of has worked its way uh, into this, uh, this book that I've written as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Sweet. Well, let's, yeah, that's, let's, uh, that's a good transition. Let's talk about your book. You, you recently put out a book uh, called Paul in the Good Life, Transformation and Citizenship in the Commonwealth of God. And so just for starters, probably a question you've been asked a million times, uh, but why did you write this book and who is it for? Yeah. So funny story. I was, I was uh, on a sabbatical year and I was doing the research and writing for this. And I was visiting some friends back in California where I used to live. And uh, the, the friends by that time had a college age daughter. And she asked me, why are you writing a book on Paul? And it was such an obvious question and I've never actually thought about an answer to it because I have a, right, people with PhDs, that's what we do. We just write books, but that seemed like a stupid answer, right? I'm writing a book because that's, I have a PhD. Nobody would ever want to read a book like that. And, uh, and it kind of froze there. And her mom, who is my friend from back in college, said, well, just explain it like you would to a college student. And kind of in that moment, I realized, oh, I've been thinking about this book as a book that I would write for people like me, like people in the academy. And kind of this, it was this inside baseball kind of book in my mind, like arguing all sorts of find distinctions about Paul. And I realized, actually, I don't want to write that book. <laughs> I, I've written a book like that already, kind of. I want to write a book that somebody like Abby, the, the, the college student, might one day pick up and say, this helps me understand Paul and why he's important. Um, so uh, that was kind of, I had been thinking about the book for a, a long time, but I hadn't really started to shape the argument and that conversation helped me think, I want to write for college students. You know, I'm a college professor, so I want to write with my own students in mind. I'm, I'm a churchgoer. I want to write for people at my own church. Um, and I want to write for somebody who might just be intellectually curious and pick up a book about Paul. Now, those three things being said, I'm, I'm also, I am kind of having that inside baseball conversation with people who are scholars um, and, and sometimes that takes um, the focus in the book, and there's some parts of the book that are, I think, quite challenging to read um, for people that aren't scholars, uh, but hopefully not too many. Um, I guess the, the other conversation that I had that helped me think about this book was with my mom. 
we were taking a road trip and she said, so tell me about this book. I'm like, my mom is, you know, a lifelong Christian. She loves Jesus. It's very important to her. Um, but she's not a scholar. I'm like, how, how do I talk about this project with somebody like that? And the thing that came to me is um, talk about salvation, right? This is, this is what is basic uh, and important to all Christians, probably in every place and throughout history. Does, does the way that Paul thinks about salvation help us at all? And, and what I explained to my mom and then decided I was going to like begin the book with is we often think about salvation as being saved from something, like being saved from life-threatening peril. So if you see somebody drowning in a river, you reach in and you pull them out. And often we think of salvation as being saved from sin or the consequences of sin, uh, you know, that salvation uh, saves us in the sense that we get to spend eternity with God in heaven rather than distance from God in hell. The way I think uh, that we perhaps need to also think about salvation is that it is being saved to something or maybe restored to something. So, uh, the Greek word soteria that we translate as salvation often has the connotation of being made whole or brought to health. It often, for example, in the Luke's gospel seems to have that connotation. So I also think of salvation in this book, as I think Paul does, as being restored to a life of human flourishing. Um, and that happens, and he writes this in his letter to the church in Colossae, um, as we are transferred, as we're rescued from uh, the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. So in other words, what salvation looks like is not just something that happens eschatologically at the end of the story, but it is something that is happening now in anticipation of that end as we are made whole, made more fully human as we learn to live um, uh, under, Jesus lead, uh, under Jesus' leadership. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, the big idea of the book and, and who I hope might read it. Yeah, right on. Well, thank you. Uh, the, that, the chapter on salvation was, was really good. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and we were, we were actually going we gonna to come to that, but I'm glad you brought it up. Because um, one thing, too, that kind of struck me more recently in regards to this idea of salvation is um, I, I was reading and, and I saw somebody make a distinction between eternal life and everlasting life. Hmm. Um, everlasting life, you know, uh, falls within the realms of time. It's just time that never ends. Uh, whereas eternal life, um, to be eternal is to transcend time, to be outside of time. And so that distinction really stood out to me. And I think um, that that even fits into the conversation because uh, perhaps part of what Paul is talking about is not just, you know, I get to go to heaven when I die kind of thing, but rather talking about a, a quality of life, mm. a way of being in the world um, yeah. here, here and now. And that that there's a eternal aspect to that. I don't know that that came to mind as you were speaking. I think that's right. You know, the Greek word that Paul uses that we translate as eternal in Greek is ionios, and an ion is an age, and the adjective ionios is like pertaining or of the ages. In fact, there's a there's a translation of the New Testament um, published by David Bentley Hart, and it's a it's a curious translation because he's trying to preserve the quality of the Greek language in the translation. And it's sometimes to preserve the strangeness of it, I think, to give us an encounter of um, not just the ideas in our own idiom, but how they might've been expressed by the writers of the New Testament. Um, and uh, he translates eternal as of the ages. And what that would have meant, I think in Paul's context, so Paul, to a degree, was what we might think of, yeah, you got the book, Josh, yeah, uh, was an apocalyptic thinker in the sense that 
he understood himself to be living in an age that had been marred by human rebellion, by human sin and evil, and that God was going to address the problem of evil um, in a definitive way by judging and redeeming the world. And that, that act of God would usher in a new age. So to speak of the life of the ages is to speak of, I think you're right, Josh, the quality of life when God um, will intervene definitively in, in the world. Now for Paul, what that intervention looks like is radically different than his fellow Jews would have thought because he believed that had had already begun with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we were sort of, we've been ushered into this new age, even though it's not fully here yet, but we're living as though it is an anticipation of the the consummation of the age hmm yeah for sure and this is slightly off uh topic of your book but i'm just interested um because it, it plays into this conversation and um like based off your understanding of uh paul and his writings um and this idea that we're talking about the the eternal life um so, because like a lot of Christianity has been influenced uh, by Plato, like N.T. Wright mm. talks about that a lot, like this mm-hmm. Platonic idea of a soul being the most important thing going somewhere. What, like in your understanding, what, like does Paul think that people have souls in, in that sense? Like, do you, maybe that's not quite your your field of study and it's off topic, but it's it's intriguing to me in the salvation yeah. conversation. Well, I'm, I'm no expert here, uh, for sure. I think maybe what's helpful, um, and, and Paul is not self-reflective on the nature of the soul. So he's not somebody like Plato or Aristotle that is trying to articulate what he thinks the soul is. He assumes that we have one. Um, you know, so he makes reference to the soul and to the ad- suke and the adjective sukikos, Uh, So he clearly understands that we have one. I suspect that when Paul thinks of the soul, what he's thinking of is more something like the animating principle of a a human. Now, I may be reading Aristotle a little bit into Paul, um, and I... So if that's the if that's the charge, I guess I'm guilty. But the way Aristotle sees the human soul is kind of it is every everything that is alive has a soul. So a plant has a soul, an animal has a soul, a human has a soul. It's the animating principle that makes us what we are. And so an animal soul is different than a, a plant because a plant is purely vegetative, and a human soul is different than an animal because we have a rational faculty. And in fact, really what it means to be a human for Aristotle is to be able to act in a way that brings the appetitive part of your soul um, and, and trains it to listen to the rational part so that your, your appetites aren't like a dog's just entirely controlling you. You put out food for a dog and it will just eat. Our dog would probably eat until it died, but humans have an ability to say, oh, maybe I should not eat as much as I want. Maybe I shouldn't eat food that belongs to other people and so forth. So these are all functions of um, the soul's ability to uh, direct the body's intentions and desires and activities. Maybe that was more philosophy than you wanted. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. The first time I met Josh's dog, I thought he was going to eat. I thought she was going to eat me. Katara is like a, she's an intense dog, but She's super loving and kind, but she jumps up. She got all up, all up there, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Man, this dog is about to eat me!" But um, <laughs> as we, so as we're as we're talking more along the lines of Paul, as I was reading through the book, and particularly the first chapter, I noticed that you were talking a lot about the concept of um, you. You kind of didn't have the same respect for Paul as you maybe had gained as you started looking deeper into this. And and I guess the question that um, you were kind of working through is like, what, like, what do I say to people who say that we don't need Paul? Mm. We only need Jesus. Um, You know, we we only need to focus on the gospels, you know, what Paul has to say isn't important. Um, So I, I, I guess, you know, why do we need Paul? What, 
what changed your mind there? Yeah. So to, to be fully, you know, frank here, I didn't like Paul in my early 20s. I didn't like the people that liked Paul. I thought that Paul was a busybody. Uh, he just was writing letters to tell people what to do and what to think. And he was the sort of people, sort of person that was making these hairline um, distinctions in theology. And the people that liked Paul seemed to be like, like that same thing too, and to be kind of divisive people within the church. Um, then I learned some things about Paul and I, I changed my mind. One of the important things I, I, I realized, and this is just absolutely basic, is that Paul was writing his letters to these little fledgling outposts of the kingdom of God throughout Asia Minor, primarily, and, and Greece. Um, he, he was writing these letters about 20, 20, 30 years before the gospel writers. So if you read Galatians, um, if you read Galatians and then you read Mark's gospel, it will feel like you're uh, going backwards in the narrative because the gospel is prior to Paul's letters or the story that it tells us, but you're actually going forward in time. And I realized that the ways that I was reading the gospels were th uh, through lenses that had been ground by Paul's hard work to figure out what the significance of Jesus is. Like, this is an interesting experiment. If you, if all you had was Mark's gospel and it just, you discovered it and you didn't have any context of the past 2000 years of Christian theology and ethics, uh, it might be a confusing text, right? It ends with an empty tomb, but you don't know what the significance of that is. <laughs> um, there's this guy walking around uh, Palestine talking about a kingdom, but unfortunately he gets killed by the Romans and then he vanishes. What do you make of that? Um, and Paul is the one, not the only one, but he was the, I think one of the earliest ones that helped us see what to make of that, that actually, Jesus had inaugurated God's kingdom on earth. And Paul had this idea of, again, not exclusively Paul, um, establishing these little outposts, these communities of people who believed in that resurrection reality and were living their lives in anticipation of that vision. Um, so I got this idea from and to write that, that when we think about Jesus and Paul, we sort of, we should think about the division of labor, that Jesus, his job was to inaugurate the kingdom. Paul saw his job as figuring out the significance of that for our lives um, and what it meant to live in light of the kingdom that Jesus had uh, inaugurated through his resurrection. And in that sense, Paul is kind of more helpful to where we are because we also are living in that reality. And Paul, I think, is useful for showing us how. Yeah. And it, and I think there is a phrase in the, in the first chapter, you said something like along the lines of Jesus was to Jews as Paul was to Gentiles. Um, mm. and, and, it, and it seems, it seems to me that, you know, Jesus was doing a lot of his work, and the, the big work that he was doing was with the with the leaders of the day. Not that he was reaching those people specifically, but he was he didn't come just to speak to the leaders, but to everybody. Um, Paul kind of parsed that out, you know, and like, hey, you know, this isn't just a you know only for the religious high people in the high places, but this is for you know everyone to experience. And Paul kind of had that opportunity to reach out to people, you know, as you know, before these gospels were put together. So I, I just appreciated that mm. aspect mm -hmm. of what you had to say. Um, it was, it was an aspect I hadn't thought of because I think oftentimes um, I'm guilty of the, you know, well, Paul said it, but what did Jesus say, you know, and, and mm -hmm. kind of writing Paul off completely, not that what Jesus said isn't important, obviously, but um, what Paul has to say carries a lot of weight, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Marty. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Julian, I don't know how much you know about our show, um, but so our show Rethinking Faith um, is, you know, a lot of our audience for this show is, is made up of 
um, people who find themselves within the realms of like the deconstruction, reconstruction kind of, you know, season of faith movement, whatever language you want to use for it. Um, and so thinking about them, why does a conversation like this matter? Because I think it does. Um, but I'm interested to, to see what you think. Why does, why does this kind of uh, conversation matter to them? And why should they care about Paul and, and virtue ethics and the good life and things like that? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Um, one has to do with something I learned when I started teaching at this place where I'm teaching. I'm going to say, deal with that second. Uh, the first thing to say is um, probably many of your listeners might think of Paul as I did. Um, not a person who seems to be saying much that I find interesting or valuable or necessary because Paul is sometimes perceived as saying, right, you became a Christian or you're thinking about a Christian. Um, I'm going to tell you all the things that you need to believe and I'm going to tell you all the things that you need to do, right? So he's sort of the, the, the guy who lays down the rules. Um, and for a number of reasons, that seems unattractive to us and maybe unnecessary. Um, but to go back to Marty's observation about how Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God uh, among primarily his fellow Jews, what I think Paul helpfully does is say, you know what? The implications of Jesus' proclamation that the kingdom of God is now here, this is for everybody. And one of the things he's doing is making a way for people that wouldn't have been included or wouldn't have felt themselves to be included in Jesus' proclamation. He's making a way for those people to come in. So it's maybe helpful. I mean, if we think of Paul as the, the busybody who's laying down the rules, I think Paul would have seen his task as trying to make a way for people to come into this who didn't feel, who wouldn't have felt invited. So maybe that's one reorienting thing. Um, the second thing that I'll say is, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this by sharing a little story. In, in the first semester uh, of my, the class that I teach every fall for first year students, the, the basic question we're asking is, what does it mean to live a flourishing life? What is the good life and how do we pursue it? And we start out by reading ancient Greek texts uh, Greek tragedy, Greek philosophy. And then we kind of take what students feel like is this hard turn to the Bible. And we go from Aristotle to the book of Genesis. And when we do that, I think a lot of students will automatically assume, hang on, this feels illegitimate. We were asking questions of philosophy about the good life. And now clearly we must be asking religious questions. And especially for students that aren't religious, they go, why, is, why are we even talking about this? And some students will feel like, oh, I'm glad we're talking about this, except we ought not to be talking about it in a classroom because this belongs in a church. And here's the point. I think in modern Western or uh, you know, postmodern Western society, we tend to think of a division between the uh, public sphere and the private sphere. And in the public sphere belong things like politics and economics. Um, and the private sphere belong things like religion because they're subjective and personal and they don't really belong in public discourse. And the thing that I try and help my students see, and this is why I think for people who, uh, I think you put it are sort of in that deconstructing and reconstructing relationship with Christian faith, um, Paul has different answers, to be sure, to the question of what makes for a flourishing life. But he is asking that question, right? He's, what's of concern to Paul is the quality of life that we live. So if you're a human and you have a life and you want to live a good one, I think Paul might have some helpful things to say um, rather than just seeing Paul as, okay, friends, here's the rules, follow them. Or here's the things you got to believe, and if you don't, then you're out. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And I appreciated what you had to say uh, along those lines um, when you were talking about how you'll have the people on the one side that feel like we should be talking about it and the feel people on the other side that feel like we shouldn't. And then the people in the middle or kind of, um, I guess, above, quote unquote, that are looking at both people and being like, y'all are crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to you need to be looking at this totally separately. Uh, but I, so I appreciated that. So um I, I think Josh and I just, we'd love to get into kind of giving a breakdown of the four arguments that kind of key arguments in your book, the elements of citizenship, character, community, and creation. Um, we'd love to talk about each one of those specifically, but we don't want to give away your book so that no one goes and buys it because we want people to go and buy the book <laughs> and read the book, which they should. Um, so I guess the the first one we'll start, we'll just kind of start from the from from the beginning, I guess. What role would you say citizenship plays for Paul in The Good Life? Okay, maybe this is kind of a, a strange one because it seems kind of like it's coming out of left field, we think of Christianity as having to do with faith, right? How we relate to God and citizenship. That just seems to be like a concern of the nation state. Um, But let me go back to that picture of what is salvation. It's not just being rescued from something, but it is being restored to something. And in the ancient world, people would have thought of a king as a savior. Uh, The Greek word is soter. So picture this, that, you know, you, you live in a city ruled over by a tyrant and a king comes to liberate you. Then he doesn't just turn around and leave you. He wants to uh, replace the evil rule of the tyrant with a better rule, a rule that um, fosters true flourishing. So um, what I think is fundamental about the life of Christian faith is understanding that we are living in a commonwealth um, that Jesus is king of. And that has profound implications for how we live our day-to-day life. When I was writing that chapter, it was a particularly acrimonious point in the immigration debate. I mean, when is it not acrimonious? And I kind of realized we, in the Western world, that's in wealthy countries, tend to think of citizenship as a privilege. That's why people want to come to countries that are well off and be citizens of them because they afford uh, opportunities for a better life. When Paul writes about uh, our citizenship that is in the heavens, this is in uh, the letter to the church in Philippi. Um, He also writes that we have been given the privilege of sharing in Jesus' suffering. Uh, So it's a radical reorientation to follow uh, and serve and be formed into the likeness of a king who is a suffering king, rather than to see citizenship as just equated with uh, privilege. Yeah, and this this question of, of... Uh, citizenship for me is rather interesting because I like this was a just for my like own personal journey this was a a shifting point for me when I started engaging this kind of citizenship language the kingdom of God and things like that I mean specifically in regards to like nationalism specifically like Christian nationalism in this country as opposed to citizenship within the kingdom of heaven and so I think there's a there's a temptation to it definitely for me and Marty and I have had these conversations uh, to almost withdraw from one form of citizenship specifically in my context that citizenship in the United States um, you know so withdrawal could look like perhaps you don't vote or you know whatever um, because, you know, the motivation would be, oh, well, I'm a citizen in the, the kingdom of God, which is, you know, breaking into the here and now, and we can live into it. And, you know, we're called to, to bring heaven on, on earth and all these kind of things. What, like, do you think there's a healthy balance there between the citizenships, like a citizenship in the kingdom of God compared to say citizenship, uh, here in the States, um, Does it have to be a complete separation, which is like what, you know, more Anabaptist-y kind of people do, which is kind of some of the people I hang out with? 
Um, or maybe there's a more healthy, neutral middle ground. Yeah, that's such a difficult but important question. I'm glad you raised it. Um, I don't know that I can give a definitive answer, but let me suggest some things to think about. In Philippians, when Paul says our citizenship is in the heavens, what Paul thinks about when he thinks of heaven is not some place you go to after you die that has nothing to do with earth. He's thinking of heaven as the effective realm of God's authority. So to say that our citizenship is in heaven is to say that we conduct ourselves as citizens in a way that is looking forward, is anticipating the fulfillment of God's kingdom on earth. So we're going to live today as though these things we hope for, or that hope will one day be fully true, as though they're true now. So you're kind of, you're, you're marching to the beat of a different drummer, so to speak. Um, and I don't think that looks like withdrawal. It may look like, um, to, to borrow a phrase from Sylvia Kiesmat and Brian Walsh, they've written a couple of commentaries, one on Colossians, one on Romans. They talk about an ethic of secession. And what they mean by that is to secede from attitudes and practices in the world around us, not to sort of uh, lock yourself away from the cares and concerns of the rest of the world. I think maybe one helpful thing to say about citizenship too is the way I think about it in this book is that the really important thing that happens when we see our citizenship in heaven is that we begin to be formed as people in a different way. We begin to be transformed into the character of our King Jesus. And that doesn't mean that we lock ourselves up in churches, but rather we are set free in the world to be in the world in a different way. I mean, consider this. I love what I is attributed to Winston Churchill. He said, uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest. So we've got, you know, arguably this great form of government. The problem is we can't make people to put in that government to make it work. So a government, an institution, any kind of political structure is only as good as people who have integrity to, to, to do the work that government calls for. So I think of what's happening through the reign of Jesus is we are being formed into the sort of people that can go into the world and participate in these civic structures um, to, uh, to, to make a world that, uh, that is truly flourishing and brings glory to God. Okay. Yeah, cool. Thanks. That That's helpful. And it actually, it ties in nicely. It, it's a nice uh, segue um, because another important aspect of your book is, is that of character and character formation. And you talk about how uh, the role or like of a good king, of a virtuous king was actually to instill virtue to the king's people which was new information to me. I didn't know that. And I had some aha moments uh, when, when reading that section uh, specifically in regards to the Christian faith. Um, but how does Paul understand this idea of character formation in regards to Jesus as King? Okay. Uh, there's a lot of detailed argument in the chapter that I won't get into here, but maybe uh, one concept to think about uh, it's a concept that I refer to in the book as transformation by vision. The idea is that we become like what we look at, uh, or at least metaphorically, we, we become like the things that we give our attention to, maybe is a better way. And so that's an argument for um, choosing very carefully the things that you give your attention to, the way uh, or the 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 things that you spend your time on. And I think Paul, so the way Paul sees Jesus as being uh, relevant to character formation is think about, um, think about a class that you had 
maybe in grade school or whatever, I think of my sixth grade class with William Winston. I learned a lot of things in that class, but I think I learned a tremendous amount from that teacher of by being in his presence and by seeing how he lived his life, right? So there's, there's a tremendous uh, power of association, of being with a person and learning the pattern of their life. And it's a kind of thing you learn not by books, but you, you, it's, so it's not actually taught, but it's caught. And I think Paul thinks if we spend time in the presence of Jesus, we will take on his character. Now, that raises the obvious question, what do you do when Jesus isn't physically among us? And I think Paul would say, well, there are, there are practices, spiritual practices, or we in the church, we've called them spiritual disciplines, that in a way function to place us in the presence of Jesus. Because Paul believes that Jesus is in fact present in the church through the Spirit, not in a way that we can fully understand or define with precision, but it's real. And these spiritual practices, you know, uh, prayer, worship, um, study, fasting, solitude, silence, a great book by Richard Foster, uh, Celebration of Discipline, will introduce your listeners to those. Um, these are the sort of things that place us in the presence of Jesus and help us to become like Jesus. Yeah, that, that's really good. And it, it also too reminds me of, um, who is it, James? Is it James uh, K. Smith who has the yeah. you, are, you Are What You Love uh, yeah. text, which is really helpful. And it also, um, it ties in, I know some of our listeners well, like this bit, it, it seems to like it ties in aspects from, uh, if, you know, we go into atonement theories, uh, like moral exemplar theory kind mm. of fits in there. You know, Jesus is our, our moral example. Um, although some people argue that there's not enough teeth on that theory. It's at least one that's very helpful. Um, and and Paul seems to agree. So I, I don't know. I thought of those things. Yeah. Actually, so James K. Smith is, is kind of a, a helpful segue into the next part of the book, which is about community. And the question here is, how can Christians in the church have unity together when uh, we come from so many different cultural backgrounds and ethnicities, right? Christianity isn't the sort of organization that brings people together around a common set of cultural or ethnic uh, shared values were brought from everywhere. So it's a, it's a sort of community that's very hard to have unity in the midst of that diversity. The surprising thing that I sort of discovered is that worship actually is pretty important in Paul's view in, in establishing unity. Probably the, the argument for that is a little bit too complex to go into here, but here's where James uh, Smith's work has been helpful to me. One of the things that worship does is it, sh is it provides a habitus for us, kind of a, a pre-cognitive way of responding to the world. So if you see a homeless person on the street and your first response is, lazy bum, get a job, well, you've, you've been formed in a certain way if you, if you say, Here's a person who needs compassion and kindness and maybe social services. You've been formed in a different way. The, the point is you're probably responding to what you see on the street with something in your gut before your brain has a chance to even set to work. And the way our guts or our hearts are formed um, is or can be if it's done well is through worship because what worship does is it restores or james smith says it restores our imagination it places us into the story of god's grand narrative and that's what helps us how to know how to how to live ethically in the world yeah and i think the other answer is the the drinking ceremony that you're talking about here that's right <laughs> <laughs> getting involved in that uh, no but I, I really love what you had to say um the present chapter will explore the role of communal worship and the task, as Paul puts it, of putting on or clothing oneself with the virtuous character of Christ. And the, I mean, obviously, the, the first thing I think of there is like, you know, putting on the um, putting on like the the like the breastplate of righteousness and, mm -hmm. and the helmet of truth and those types of things, putting on the full armor of God. And I mean, so many have wrestled with the armor of God from, you know, from modern theologians to Puritans to, you know, Martin Luther, so many have wrestled with understanding that. And I think 
what I'm seeing here in this chapter is just a real connection to worshiping Jesus. And I, and I don't think it's worship in the modern sense that we think of it, where it's like, oh, well, we put on worship music or like we put on yeah. the latest Hillsong album. Okay, that's worship. I think worship looks so much different. And I think um, I think one of the things modern Christians can seek to understand is a richer understanding of worship beyond some songs they hear on Caleb or something like that. But what does worship really mean? Um, and so I, I just really, I'm a worship pastor. That's kind of my, uh-huh, what I uh-huh. feel called to be. And so as I read through this chapter, I really appreciated like, like, like I said, the putting on or clothing oneself with the worship aspect. It's, it's sort of putting on that, you know, that cloak of righteousness as we, as we worship Jesus he it's it's sort of this reciprocal thing so mm. i just as i read through yeah. that to me there was just so much so much parallels to um you know when when i interview at churches and they ask questions like what is your what is your philosophy of worship and mm. you know they what they're looking for is you know an answer as to how you view worship not just from a planning perspective but what it means for you and i don't think that i've ever really answered it in this kind of way before that it's sort of like a putting on or clothing mm-hmm. oneself mm-hmm. with that. So that was really, I personally really appreciated that uh, richness to that. Thank you for that. Oh, I'm glad that I'm glad you found that helpful. You know, maybe the other thing to add in Ephesians, Paul uses a language that is uh, imbued with the language of worship. And it's so different from his other letters. In fact, it's one of the reasons scholars think that Paul may not have written it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more of persuaded by the fact that. Paul is intentionally using that kind of language uh, to draw his audience into worship, um, to help them experience something uh, that they kind of need to get uh, in their heart or their gut in order to also understand the, the, the logical argument that he's making. Yeah. Like so, then I guess the the final section we want to talk about here. Josh has one more question after this. I know we want to get to that, but um, what role does creation play for Paul's understanding of human vocation in the good life? Yeah, excellent question. And uh, so this is where the book finishes up. And let me answer just by briefly kind of talking about Aristotle. So Aristotle writes this book, and he's trying to say, what does it mean to live a good life? And his intuition is, we have to try and look at the basic human function or telos. And for, for, for Aristotle, it's, you know, the activity of the soul in accord with reason. So training your soul to listen to reason, as it were. For Paul, there's a different telos, and it goes all the way back to Genesis, uh, where we read that humans were created in God's image for a specific purpose to have dominion over the world. That sounds like a, a little bit of a scary thing, mostly because in light of Genesis 3, where we rebel against God, uh, dominion over the world has been exercised in a fearsome way. And uh, in, you know, in the post-industrial industrial age, uh, the, the human mistreatment of, the, of God's creation has now um, gone to such lengths that we are, are threatening. It's an existential question. Um, Paul, of course, wasn't facing that level of ecological degradation, although I think he knew about uh, some of the things that Rome was doing uh, in the Mediterranean that might have been cause for alarm. But, you know, the, the bigger point here is we're not just, I mean, human flourishing isn't just an individual thing about me and the sort of character I develop or even about me in the context of my own community. But for Paul, it is being restored to what God made us for. Uh, in in the, the lingo of N.T. Wright, we were made to be looking after creatures. God made a beautiful world, and he set us in it with kind of a unique role to look after it as God would, um, and to recognize we are part of the community of creation. It's our shared home. And so everything I, I write in the book about what it means to have a good life has to be seen through the lens of this, our ultimate vocation, to, to be restored to this vocation of uh, 
caring for this home in a way that brings honor to God and really reflects what it means to be made in the image of God. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I love it. That's, <laughs> I get excited that uh, the N.T. Wright language is, is so good. And I think, um, too, I mean, even I'm reminded of a conversation we had with a uh, Bible scholar, uh, Sandy Richter. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, we hung out with her and, and talked about her book about um, creation mm-hmm. care. And uh, yeah, it was just beautiful, you know, so much resonance. But just that idea of uh, restored vocation of humanity, you know, being created in the image of God and, and what that means. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's what gets yeah. me excited. And, um, and you know, just to your earlier question about people who are in this deconstructing and reconstructing phase uh, relationship with, with Christian faith, I think it's helpful to realize the thing that maybe people who are being born into the world now get in a way that people my age and up are having a hard time getting with is that, right, we've got to care for this world and we've got to live in it differently than people have been doing up to now. And I think, you know, the, the fundamental challenge here is to, is, is a, it's a problem of imagination, right? Sure. We have to imagine a way of living differently. And actually, when we read Paul afresh, I think he can give us that new uh, reimagined way of living in the world hmm. um, that we've lost. And sadly, I think the church has contributed to that loss. That's one of the sort of shameful, difficult truths that we also have to reckon with. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just to go to your point, like I find myself within that deconstruction, reconstruction world and this idea of the restoration and redemption of creation and the idea that, you know, Jesus came to teach us a better way to be human. Both of those ideas are things that that keep me hanging out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, like there's something about this Jesus guy that keeps me coming back. Um, and there's something about this this vocation as, as humans to um, take care of creation that that keeps me around as well. Um, but just one one more question that we wanted to ask. And it, it's super relevant. Like, I don't I don't know if you've seen this yet, but Gallup. Um, just released some new findings, and they released a poll showing that U.S. church membership has fallen below majority lines for the first time in their eight-decade history. Hmm. And so, basically, the church is dying, which is is not news. Um, but what do you make of the dying church, and how do you think it impacts Paul's message of the good life. You know, I think the death of things is not always a bad thing. Um, if uh, if the Christian faith teaches us anything, uh, it's that death is not the final answer. That out of death is resurrection. Uh, obviously, in a in a, I mean that both in a particular specific way, thinking of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But also, I think, um, in, in metaphorical ways, too, that help us think about the, the fabric of life. So, it's not necessarily, in my view, a bad thing for the church to be experiencing this, because I think, in many ways, the church has lost its way. I don't mean that to be a blanket accusation against the church or all Christians, but I, I do think that uh, in a number of ways we've gotten um, on the we've we've headed off on wrong paths, and I'll just say this: when Paul proclaimed Jesus as Lord, you know the, the people in Thessalonica, we read this in Acts, they say, "Hey, this guy is advocating that there's another king different than the emperor, and he's dangerous." And I think they were dead right. But I, so when Paul proclaims that Jesus is Lord, the implied message is Caesar is not. Um, And I think in many ways, the church has uh, overtly and covertly, and in some ways unconsciously, endorsed Caesar as Lord rather than Jesus. And I don't know what's all behind people leaving the church. 
Um, but I would guess that at a minimum, that's a reflection of people saying, this doesn't seem to be the sort of institution that's relevant and that is proclaiming and helping us understand a new way of living. It seems to be something else. And, and so maybe, maybe this will be uh, a, a good time for the church to be more like what Paul understood or Paul experienced the church to be, these little outposts um, symbolizing and enacting uh, the, the kingdom of God that is breaking in in the world. I think it would be great if the church learned to take up that identity again. Yeah, I agree. And I, I just recently had a conversation with a coworker who, um, you know, she was explaining to me, she does, she sells different things and does some other things on the side. And, you know, she said, well, I, I probably shouldn't tell you about that. You're, you're a man of God. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I, and I was like, well, Hey, hey, know. hey, for clarity, what does she sell there, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, she, she does. Uh, it's like, um, it's like, what are those? Oil, yeah. <laughs> like it's, 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 it's essentially, not it's not essential oils but it's like um things it's, they're like sex toys i think to be honest okay. like i'm sorry that's kind of like a little, a little it, it's not what you think but great success <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and she uh she basically was like oh i probably can't talk to you about that and i and i was like why you know like I, you know i said i'm not i said i'm for you and uh, <laughs> i'm on your team you know like like you know jesus preached love and um i think that's the message is to love everybody and to be for people. I don't, I, as I said, I don't think that you need to worry about like what I think of that. And she said, well, that's, that's, that's encouraging to hear because that's not the response I mm. typically get when I talk about what I do with people that are churchgoers or are into faith or something. That's not, I just, I've learned to just kind of steer clear of those people mm. because they, mm -hmm. they're, they aren't caring or loving. And that's like, she's like, it, it really means something to me that you are for me no matter what. And, you know, that doesn't mean I'll necessarily go purchase anything um, or whatever, but it but it means that I'm for the person and the person matters. And I think I think we see that consistently in the life of Jesus, that the individual matters, the person matters um, what they are doing. Jesus still says when 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 um, when he says, you know, that he was he was without sin, throw the first stone after they all leave and throw their stones down, he still says, now go and sin. Mm -hmm. He still speaks to, but the person mattered. Mm -hmm. And, and I think we can, I think we as Christ followers can take that example. Um, so that's not necessarily Pauline <laughs> as much. I mean, not that Paul isn't for people, but you know, I just, I thought of that as you were speaking right now. And mm -hmm. think we think about the good life. I think Paul would be for the person as well because Jesus was for the person. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That's a helpful yeah. reminder. Thanks, Marty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think too, just, um, to, you know, to close and, and wrap us up here, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, Julian, I, I don't think death is always a bad thing. Um, and if yeah. anything, the Christian tradition teaches us that on the other side of death, there's resurrection. And so my hope is that, um, like you were saying, this idea um, of, you know, Paul and the good life could, uh, you know, be one that uh, we see on the other side of, of resurrection or something that could at least be a, a hopeful thing uh, moving forward. I mean, recently, um, just anecdotally, I, I resigned my position uh, working at at the, the church. And um, I have no qualms with the church I'm at now. Listeners know that the first two churches I worked at were less than stellar. Um, but as, as I'm leaving now, it's not, I I'm, I'm not angry. Um, I love the, the people of the church. I love the staff that I work at. It's, it's a beautiful church. I think it's um, one of the greatest representations of the kingdom of God uh, that I've seen as in it's, it's insanely, it's multi-ethnic, it's insanely diverse, it is very community focused and driven. Um, and it's, it's living into these ideas that you, you talk about in your book. Um, but also I know that the, the you know, commonwealth of God um, can be found outside the walls of um, the institutional church, that the body of Christ is larger than just the people who gather on a Sunday, although that thing is important. Um, and so I'm taking a, a new step in, into the, a completely different realm, uh, but hopefully with the intentions of continuing to live into that commonwealth, continuing to 
attempt to live into the the good life as as Paul saw fit, um, and as Jesus saw fit. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I've had a lot of fun with this conversation. I have like 500 more like super nerdy questions I could ask you, (laughs) but I will spare our listeners and you as well. And perhaps I'll have to uh, get together with, uh, you know, invite Jason and have a few beers and we can be nerds then. That's right. I'll, I'll have to make my way to your brewery next time I'm in Baltimore, and, and we absolutely can, uh, we can ask all the nerdy questions we want. Then. I would, yeah, I would love to have you. That'd be a ton of fun. That's like right up my alley. Like good craft beer and nerdy theology, philosophical kind of conversations. That's, Excellent. That's yeah. what I like to do. So. <laughs> good deal. Well, again, Julian, thank you so much for hanging out. Listeners, just so you know, Julian has been awesome. It's been uh, a lot of craziness trying to get him here um, just with scheduling and and miscommunication and things like that. And Julian's been very patient with us and very gracious. And so uh, Marty and I are are very grateful for that and grateful for Julian and your time. So Julian, thank you again uh, for hanging out with us today. Well, it's been a pleasure, Josh and Marty. Uh, Honored to be on your podcast. Really enjoyed it today. Yeah. yeah, man. Um, where can where can people find you if they want to get connected to uh, you and, and more of your work? Yeah, so you can look for me, uh, my university website, uh, valpo, V-A-L-P-O dot E-D-U, um, and search for me there. Um, uh, I'm on Facebook, not very much, but, but if you friend me, I'll, I'll probably say yes, but it might take me some time. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or just come come to Valparaiso, Indiana. Show up at my house, and I'll and I'll uh, <laughs> and we can sit on the porch and and chat. Sweet, sounds like a plan, man. Good deal. All right, listeners. Will as always, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. And contrary to what Marty's going to want to say, go Caps. No, go Blackhawks and go <laughs> go Canadians for Julian. Yay! Yay! In Berlin, Berlin, uh, New Hampshire. That's right. Yes. <laughs> right on. Peace and love, guys. Bye, guys.